Hey folks, this is Anatoly, and you're listening to the Solana podcast. And today I have a really awesome guest. It's Dunkard, who's a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation and is protocol designer for ETH2. Really excited to have you on the show. Hi, yeah, really nice to be here. Thanks, Anatoly. So despite what people think, uh, protocol engineers or people working on different protocols are not like arch nemesis. <laughs> we actually like <laughs> each other. And <laughs> all, all the folks that I've met that work on Ethereum, either ETH1 or ETH2 are, are like amazing people. And I miss the days where I could get a beer with them at a conference. Um, so it, hopefully again soon this year. Yeah, ho- hopefully again soon. <laughs> um, I'm, I'd love for you to kind of like give a sense of of what is ETH2 and like I will ask you the dumb questions that I think I, I have a bunch of misconceptions myself, right? So I'll be able to ask you all, all the questions that kind of I think that are common misconceptions about ETH2 uh, just naturally. So just kind of love to hear like um, what your, your perspective on it is. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, very roughly like um, ETH2 is, the next version of Ethereum um, and in a way kind of Ethereum as it was originally promised, like you could see like say ETH1 was a kind of proof of concept that like the basic idea of having a smart contract chain works and um, but it obviously didn't have everything that was originally hoped for already built in like one of the essential components obviously proof of stake um, which uh, is one huge upgrade and um, actually like a, like maybe maybe not the most obvious thing to the user, but um, actually potentially like the, the most difficult thing in terms of implementation. Um, like, I mean, if you think about a proof of work, like to, to verify that in a client, that's like one line of code literally, right? Like yep. check that this hash has like a lot of zeros. And, um, and proof of stake is like thousands of lines of code. Um, and, um, and then on top of that, obviously it's like, um, well, as, as it should be blatantly obvious now that Ethereum one, uh, does not provide the scale, um, as is needed uh, to run like a, a world computer or like a, yeah, run all the smart demand there is for smart contract execution. And so, um, we will implement, uh, sharding, um, and uh, allow a much larger scale of transactions to be executed on ETH2. So you you think that like the biggest changes from ETH1 to ETH2 is really staking and sharding? Those are kind of like the two fundamental differences? I mean, these are the essential ones. Everything else um, is kind of, um, I mean, we, we are planning like m- many other features that are part of it. Um, like, I mean, there's obviously the question of how exactly execution um, will run on Ethereum 2. Um, uh, and uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I think there's not a final decision on that yet. That's kind of like in the future and it will probably take several more years until we have made a like kind of final version of that. Um, but obviously one actual option is that it will actually just be the EVM with some upgrades, hopefully like quite a few upgrades that make it much more efficient. Um, um, but there's also of the possibility still that it's going to be something based on WASM. Um, but um, as you can see, that's not like, that, that, that depends. And like, that's not really an essential feature of ETH2. Like it could be that an, an upgraded EVM is really good enough and, uh, and does it like, especially in a world where you don't need that much execution on most charts, or at least from the protocol, from the layer one perspective, as we're discussing now, that basically the shards will only provide lots of data, uh, basically just lots of data made available and ensured to the world, hey, the, all this data, it's there, we can assure you it's there. And then from there, you can build many things like all the roll-ups, um, and you don't actually need uh, any execution other than fraud proofs for that. That is, uh, or, or checking zero knowledge proofs for ZK. Yeah. So I don't know if you ever had a chance to talk to John Adler from Lazy Ledger. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know him. We have, we have talked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about this is that, like, uh, you know, like we, we we were like wrestling with with scaling. How do we do this? And 
we naturally went towards like again we could be wrong right like but we went for like how do we optimize execution and this idea that state is fully computed as fast as we can um which is a totally different right. kind of problem direction than what if you provided data availability and let execution take like almost lazy evaluated um and that to me it's like both sides of two sides of different coin because to make execution fast we also do tricks that are lazy allows for some lazy evaluation <laughs> at the end of the right. day uh, yeah. uh, and i actually believe in both i think both of these are essential in different ways like the data availability is like is, is just a, a huge problem and it's important like every blockchain needs to solve it in in, in some way um and of course, one way is to just like take honest the honest metric, the word of the honest majority, as you hope. But like um, in Ethereum, we have like a much more pessimistic view, and like or or let's say like we we want to build in more backstops in a way. Like even if that fails, we still don't want to be like at zero, and so um, we don't just want to rely on that. Um, and so then you have to build quite elaborate things to make sure data is available. But also, I personally, at least. So we are building something like Lazy Ledger as the first version in a way, right? You could say like the first version of ETH2 with just data shards is basically a kind of Lazy Ledger. Um, uh, but I think I kind of feel it's not quite enough. So my worry about doing everything optimistically is that it's, it's not good enough for some transactions, basically, where you really want very fast finality um, and optimistic rollups don't really provide that. There are some subtleties. I know many things can be done, but I think not quite everything. So can you tell me a little, like where what what are the subtleties with rollups uh, com coming from an e two researcher? <laughs> Right, with optimistic rollups, obviously. I mean, there, there's like zkri rollups. Obviously, are kind of perfect yeah. right? because yeah. like you, you just know it's correct and that's great. Yep. Um, but as as we both know, they are not quite there yet in terms of executing virtual machine instructions. That's like uh, something in the future, not in the very far future, but um, still a few years off. Um, and so for optimistic rollups, um, I mean, the difficulty is. In my opinion, is it's very simple. Like, I mean, I like I send you money to buy, I don't know, like your car, whatever. Um, and now, like, in the end, you always want to verify somehow that you actually got the money, right? Before you give me the keys for the car and I drive away. Um, and um, and and that's why we want finality, for example. That's why we invest so much into finality, because then we can be absolutely sure there's no way that you don't get that money. And the problem with um with optimistic rollups is like um well there could always have been a fraud before I sent you the money. And now after the fact there could be a fraud proof and suddenly that transaction is reverted. And uh, that sucks, of course. So the the subtlety there is that um, the transaction data is finalized in the Ethereum chain. It's just a state, the result of that state hasn't executed. But I can trust my, I can I can execute a local VM that evaluates that, okay, you actually, the state is correct, you send it to me. That is correct. So you can, so what you can do is like, if you, like, as in the one who receives the money, verify all the complete rollups, right? Then you can be certain that you actually got the money because you know there was no fraud, so there's not gonna be a fraud proof, right? Because fraud proofs can only be made when there was actually fraud. Um, but so that trade-off uh, is terrible because that means now instead of nodes, like instead of validators being the ones needing big machines and executing everything, it's users. I mean that that doesn't seem like a great world to me. Um, but rollups are kind of like this fine-grained sharding where we can have small user bases that are effectively like. To me, rollups are tr transaction isolation. I, I, <laughs> everyone, everyone in crypto likes to prevent, pretend they invented stuff here, but databases have done this for a long time, right? So if I have isolated set of events, my execution might be extremely small, mm -hmm. right? 
Uh, so sorry, I mean there are different things you you the, you can do, right? What you mentioned, like it could be that the rollup itself is very small, like it's only like there are thousands of rollups and you only operate on one. Then then the question is how do you how do you interact between those rollups? That now becomes a difficult problem. Or the other point is you could just verify the history of my transaction itself, right? You could only verify the history of that. And that is actually enough because, like we say, we replay all the transactions that were not involved in the fraud. Um, the problem with that is my money could literally just be coming out of Uniswap this very second, and now your your history is basically everything almost instantly, right? And so, I'm I'm not saying it can't be done. I think I think there are many things that you can do. And then people say, yes, okay, now you need to bet on the state, right? Um, and you can you can do that as well. Uh, but then also you need to like, okay, what, what if like the, the value like that's being transacted is larger than the total size of the bets? Like who gets the money now if there is a fraud and so on? Like, I, I mean, not that these problems aren't potentially solvable or at least like provide a partial solution, but I, it's not like an obvious perfect world in my opinion. Do you, like, I think my gut is that the initial rollups, um, are going to be deployed with like small sets of like guardians that just run the rollup and then submit the data to Ethereum. So you kind of have Ethereum as a, as a fail safe on these on these guardian POA networks, whatever you want to call them. It's basically like what I see rollup. Is that solution good enough for the majority of like what people need to get done in in Ethereum? Yeah, and probably yes. I mean, like many, many transactions are not like very high value. Um, and so like, why, why not? Like, I mean, like, why not do them? Why not pay for your coffee on a roll-up, right? I mean, right, like, right. yeah, that's obvious, right? And like, I, I think Cosmos um, created this like professional validator set in a way. Like I, this was really like something that happened while we were building Solana. We were like, where are we going to get all these validators? But we saw in the Cosmos network, all of a sudden, like, a bunch of people that are have brands that are that publicly advertise this is what they're staking and those are all seem to be honest participants or as honest as the small set of mining pools that run these networks like that run proof of work networks so right i i find it like really tough to especially as a earlier stage network with limited resources to, to like know that we need to build something that is more secure, more robust with the assumptions that these guys are not going to be honest uh, while, while like they're not right. Like while, while we have this environment where they're totally not there, it, it's kind of a conundrum, right? <laughs> and I mean, like, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. I think it's like, it's a, I mean, for example, what you're mentioning, I mean, these validators, um, I assume they are, they are, their identity is known as in they actually have a reputation and, and, and that's a very powerful tool, right? Like, I mean, people, so, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, but I mean, people, when they have a public reputation at stake, um, it makes a huge difference. Um, but I think the downside to that is it also makes them very susceptible, susceptible to pressure. So then what you have to be worried about is that these entities can then be pressured into, say, like um, taking, like stopping trading or something like that because like something's happening and they will feel this public pressure that like this is the right thing to do because um, because uh, some some evil cabal on um, on Reddit is uh, driving stocks up and bankrupting for <laughs> <laughs> um, And this is again, like I think one of the hardest challenges that you guys are facing is that um, you are trying to build ETH2 from the ground up with the idea that validators are corrupt and maybe more than a majority of them are corrupt and that shards themselves may end up being corrupted individually. Um, and that, that's like a, a really, that's a really hard problem. Um, <laughs> do you guys, do you think that you have like, uh, I guess to me, like part of the hardest challenge there is like, how do you 
feel that the security of a sharded network, given those constraints, can match something like what you see in ETH1 proof of work or like, you know, single sharded BBFT system, right? like Solana, Cosmos, et cetera? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think um, in terms of security, I believe that um, due to the, due to the shared security, sharding can come very, very close, like to be almost identical in security um, to like a single shard network. Um, just because, so, I mean, one part of that is sampling random communities, um, but then we don't leave it there, right? Like, I mean, there is always this worry in the background that someone can influence the sampling so that even with much less than one third or two thirds dishonored, depending on the kind of attack you want to mount, they, they can get the majority in a shard. But then getting a majority in a shard, okay, so you can, you can censor for a certain amount of time, sure. Um, but you can't, um, you can't really do much else because they are fraud proof that there's data availability checks and so on. So all the other validators would immediately isolate it and whatever fraud you're trying to do is not going to actually impact the network for a long time. Like short term, sure, you can always do, uh, like have some impact for a short amount of time. So this is like the hardest part, I think, in, in the sharding scheme is that the committee sampling is, is a hard problem to get right, right? Such that you can guarantee that static, like if you have static attackers, that they don't don't end up in the same shard. But you also have this dynamic attacker problem, right? Where once they are in that shard, and let's say that shard has yep. that shard happens to have Binance and Coinbase, or yep. <laughs> like yeah. the most important, yeah, things, yeah, absolutely, right? Right, like um, then the problem becomes how do I deal with potentially insecurity there? Uh, like just from that single shard collapsing and not taking down the whole network. Right. Uh, th that's the thing. Like, I mean, I th okay, I think the, the worry is, I, I mean, it's an interesting one, right? I mean, I think like, um, I guess we're trying to rotate fast enough that normal bribery attacks are almost impossible. As in like, it's um, it's like, it's a matter of like tens of minutes or so maybe that that you would know um, the committee, uh, committee. And so that is um, like by posting on Reddit or on Twitter, like uh, if you're on that chart, I'll give you this amount of money. That, that's not going to work. That's not going to be fast enough, right? Um, so we're really talking about something much more advanced as in like, you build some smart contract that automatically rewards when you do certain actions and validators actually run um, some software in the background that automatically checks for these situations. But it's not impossible for sure. Like, I mean, long-term you have to worry about these things. But then I think like basically all this, like the, pro the due, due to having both fraud proofs and data availability checks, I think you can't actually do much. Like, you, as in, you, you do get a short-term censorship um, ability, um, but that's basically it. So, yeah, and that is, <laughs> that, that's the tough challenge of balancing those, um, those requirements and, like, user performance. Right. Like, in a way, like, we, as we grow our validator set, like, we have, uh, like 360 nodes right now in a single shard on our mainnet and over 500 on our testnet where we kind of like, when people want to onboard, we tell them go run a node on the testnet for a month, just so you know what you're doing. <laughs> um, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we ran out of all the known reputable validators. So now there's like a long tail of people that are just showing up because there's a grant or whatever. Mm -hmm. Their incentives are not as aligned with the long-term security of the network. Um, and we have to write the software to make sure that even if they're not aligned, that they can't go break everything else. That that that's that's incredibly hard, um, hard to do. Um, right. I think ETH two, I think had what ten thousand registrations or something like that for um, for nodes. I don't have the numbers, but I mean, this all these this has always be has to be taken with a grain of salt because you never know how many independent entities there are actually. Got it. Because ETH2 does not support like uh, on-chain delegation, right? Like there is no, no. 
No, we don't do See, that. Could I even write? Could I write a smart contract that automatically aggregates stake? Or are the keys that control the 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 stakes have to be like on curve keys? Well, I mean, what you can do is so we are separating the that that there's always two keys when you stake. You have a so-called staking key and a withdrawal key. Yeah. And um, the staking key is a hot key, whereas the withdrawal key like can be in cold storage. And what you can do is, um, so if I want to delegate my stake to you, uh, what I can do is I can um, give you a staking key, or you rather you should create a staking key in the, even in the ideal world, but I keep um, the withdrawal key, which means ultimately all the funds will go to me. Now the pro problem with that is that obviously we have slashing, right? So that doesn't work if I don't trust you because I could lose literally all my money if you do something really bad. So, so uh, a company like Staked or Block Demon could spin up a bunch of nodes. Do they have to be individual nodes? Mm -hmm. So for every for every individual that wants to stake, there has to be a separate node. I mean, no, there's there's no way to to enforce that, right? Like, I mean, how do how can I know from the network perspective whether something is how many nodes it is, right? That doesn't <laughs> exist. There's no such okay. proof right. of individuality. Yeah. Exactly, right. I mean, it's the same for you, right? I mean, you you can you, you think because of the reputation that they're separate nodes, yeah. but if like 100 of your validators decided that they are tired of each spending, I don't know how many thousand dollars per month for running a node, and they just put them all together, then there's nothing you could do. And you could they could even hide it from you if they wanted to. It's not thousands, it's a few hundreds, it's not thousands. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Does that include capital depreciation or uh, just electricity and bandwidth? <laughs> just what you get out of like um, your local co-location spot, like Hetzner or whatever. Okay, so a few, for a few hundred dollars, I can get a, get an, like a powerful enough dedicated server on Hetzner that would run yep. Solana node. So the interesting effect that we saw was that because we're so bandwidth heavy, and th this goes back right to the heart of the trilemma, yeah. is you can't scale a single shard without increasing the bandwidth used by that shard. Yeah. Um, and AWS, Google Cloud, yeah. they charge an arm, arm and a leg for bandwidth. That's right, yeah. So the, the phenomenon that we saw was that people actually like decentralize, I think, in a healthier way where they go, they go find their local co-location spot where they can right. put up a server that gives them uh, bandwidth as a as you normally used to get in the '90s, where you get dedicated one gigabit or dedicated whatever yeah. for unlimited, basically. <laughs> unlimited, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, which is actually how bandwidth works, right? Bandwidth is not fungible. It's not like twenty. If I if <laughs> it's not like the capacity on AWS. If it's not used, uh, it like can be saved for the next month, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> so it it. That kind of like pricing actually makes more sense, but it's kind of funny that that that's the effect that we saw. Um, so the key thing that sharding actually solves is this splitting the shards such that each one uses less bandwidth overall. Um, and when you rotate shards, I don't have to download all the blocks that I missed, right? Right. So this is one of the essential kind of um innovations that you that you have to or like i mean we actually came to this only i don't know exactly one or two years ago that um that we basically will need uh stateless execution so you cannot if you want to really have full-fledged uh, sharding it doesn't make much sense if then once you hop on another shard you have to download the full state because then you can't really do this where you rotate validators very quickly, which is really essential, as you said, like for, um, yeah, to make sure that committees can't be compromised easily. Do I still need to download the blocks or do I download just the current, like basically Merkle root? So that, that depends. Um, that depends on whether you need to execute, right? So in theory, if you have a pure data shard, um, that's not what we're doing right now, but you could uh, even um, say that even the committee doesn't have to download the full data, that they're only sampling it. Um, yeah, so I don't know how, how familiar you are. By data, you mean the ledger or the state? 
uh, the the ledger as in the blocks. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So as I said, like basically you want to make sure that there is no state, at least from the point of view of validators. They should never have to download any state in order to know whether a block is valid or not. Um, other participants say like a block block proposer might need some kind of state. So so in this model, the validators when they rotate shards, they there is no state to download because the, the, let's say if two your guys are planning on launching with data shards only, right? So right. my validator ro yeah. rotates shards, um, yeah. and there's no there's no state Merkle for me to download. There's nothing like you're literally the only thing you need. You need to follow the beacon chain at all times. Like that's your essential duty. And the other thing is you really, you really only need to download the last, the, the very block that you are supposed to verify. That's all. How do I verify that block? Do, am I val ver what am I validating when I download this new block? That's not chained to any, to any previous history that I've seen. Right. Um, in in terms of like if if you if you if it's if you're talking about um, data sharding, yeah, uh, it's basically only there. There isn't much to verify. It's really only that you can't download it. Basically, like okay, uh, the, in in a way you're just proving there there is data that hashes to this Merkle root. So it is just literally the block uh, with let's say if ETH styles transactions. I don't execute the EVM instructions for those. No. Uh, and I, I validate that the block data is valid and there's a Merkle root. And is that root present in the beacon chain? Is the beacon chain actually aggregating yeah. Merkle roots from all the blocks? So the beacon chain is, is, is aware of all the roots, yes. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, so beacon chain basically provides uh, pointers to data mm -hmm. that is stored across shards. Right. So when my validator rotates, yeah. Yeah, so as my validator rotates, I pick up the last block that that I'm supposed to have seen if I was present in that thing, but not any of the previous ones. And then I start. Yes, exactly. So is the validator rotation, is it randomized per individual validator or are there committees that like, how, how what percentage of the val committee changes? Like, I guess, like, is that rotation like, Everything, one hundred percent. Like it's per individual. So like, basically, you can see the the list of all validators as like one long list. We completely shuffle it every epoch, and then from that we we build the committees. Like the first, so and so many validators are in the first committee, second, and so on. Why not rotate the validators individually? Like if you have like a thousand shards. I get my, I have a, my own random seed that assigns me, you know, one of those shards every 10 minutes. One shard. Right. All right. But then you would have, then the committees wouldn't be the same size, right? They would like only be statistically yeah. at a certain size. So you're, that, that wastes a bit of um, validator. So, okay. So here's the essential thing, basically. What you want is you want to, like, so you, you assume that two thirds of your validators data set is honest, right? And now you want to kind of maximize the probability. Like you want a very, very high probability that every committee is at least 50% honest. Like that probability should be very high and rim, like, I mean, so basically like so high that it's, it will never happen that a committee is just by chance uh, not honest. And um, and that that gives you a certain size of the committee that you need. Like that says you need, um, I don't know the exact number, it's some one hundred something um, validators per committee. That's like basically the the size at which this is statistically um, sound. And if if you, obviously if if you have variable size committees, then it would be you would have to go quite a bit larger. So that just wastes a bit of security. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, you can probably there's probably some proof there that shows that if the if it's a true random source and the and the bucket is large enough that the probability of that random walk getting below like mm -hmm. the diff I, I don't I think the differences between the sizes are never going to be extreme if the if you sample if if you have enough validators to sample from right right um i mean well it's it's easy to ask yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah very roughly the square root of the community yeah. size so 
If it's 100, then it's 10. Yeah. So I guess it's not huge. Like when we're talking about that. That's interesting. Okay. 10%, 10% or so. Um, so what provides the security that that data was there? Is it just simply the honest ma majority assumption? Right. Uh, no, it's not. Okay. So like, let's, I mean, in a first version, it probably will be like, I mean, we, we really right now, we're like, like we can see the absolute need to get um, to uh, to get ECM two to production in a way um, and like merge it with ETH one and have have those data shards like the 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 need is really pressing um, so we will probably concentrate on a first version that will rely on honest majority but long term that is absolutely not um, the goal so we will. Um, add, um, how familiar are you with data availability sampling? I'm not, uh, I'm not sure how much you know about we, it. I think we internally have a version of it that might be less sophisticated right. where we, uh, just simply to transmit blocks at a rapid rate, mm -hmm. we had to build something that generates a big pile of erasure coding for that block and sprays it out across the network. Right. And that retransmission actually gives okay. you a sample that Effectively, when I receive data, if if I know that the erasure coding size, let's say, is 32 by 32, and every batch that I see uh, packets from two-thirds of the network, I know that everybody recovered the block. And that can actually take some meaningful action in real time based on that. Um, because right. Right, if, if based on that sample rate, I kind of know that the erasure coding forced everybody to generate the entire block and we can actually start moving forward without relying on retransmission and repairing and all this other crap. Right, right. I'm guessing the data availability is, has like a Merkle root of, all, of this entire structure. So then I can kind of compute the path every erasure coding spot and do some a similar check, right? So, so we are actually like, because of this, um, so this is really central to us, like, data availability in our opinion is absolutely crucial and um uh so like the the fact that we're not doing it in the very first version shouldn't be taking taking as like an indication that it's not important like it's it's central and so for this reason we will actually use not use merkel roots um for for the shard blocks um we'll actually use polynomial commitments um so they're they are basically commitment schemes that unlike a Merkle root, which is a vector commitment. So like, it, it's just basically a list that you commit to, right? Um, uh, you commit to a polynomial. Um, so um, so for example, there's the KZG or a CATE commitment scheme. Um, and basically it's, it's a very nice way where you can commit to any polynomial using just a single elliptic curve group element. And then afterwards, you can prove, you can, you can give values of that polynomial and can prove that they are correct values by giving a proof, which is also only one um, elliptic curve element. And that's really nice. What am I committing to the polynomial? So like with erasure coding, I kind of like, I get it. Like I, yeah. I have the bits of the data. Oh, so a polynomial is, is an erasure yes. code, right? Yeah. I mean, essentially like... Um, the the idea so I mean the idea of erasure coding is I, I encode data I enlarge it and um, uh, in such a way that say for example if the rate is fifty percent that any fifty percent right. of the of the code is enough to reconstruct everything and the way you typically do that in almost all cases is you take the data you put a polynomial through it that evaluates to the data and then you evaluated that polynomial at a few more places. Yep. And you always know that with n evaluations, I can reconstruct any polynomial of degree n minus one, right? Um, and so that's why polynomial commitments are so powerful. So you're committing which part of the data, the actual blocks or the or the root? Yes, for the actual block. Okay. Yeah, the block itself is going to be, we're, we're just seeing it as a polynomial itself. And then the the commitment to the block is not going to be a Merkle root, but it's going to be a KZG commitment, a Cathay commitment um, to that polynomial. Are you able to, are you committing, is this done at per block level or for like, for that entire, let's say the committee last 10 minutes, let's say it's a hundred blocks. Mm. No, it's one, it's one block. Each block, Each block will be one polynomial. So when I do a data availability check, 
I sample the network for parts of that block. Yes, yes. So it's per block. Yes. Although um, we like, I mean, this is still in discussions. Like, I mean, I, I'd say like all of this hasn't been, or like we, we've, I guess we have proof of concept, so it hasn't been really specked out in detail or like not finalized. Um, but what you we might do is, for example, uh, obviously, like if you do it per block, it means you have to do samples per block as well. And every validator has to do that. So that, that's a bit expensive because that means kind of you lose a bit of the sharding right. efficiency in a way. Yeah, I mean, because you have to do some work per, per shard. It's not a lot of work. It's only like 30 samples, which is much better than downloading a whole block. But it's still some work. So why, why is it a smaller amount? Per, per shard, it's 30. But, so basically, the, idea, the whole idea of erasure coding is, right, I take a finite number, relatively small. So I, I say 30 in this case, because um, 2 to the minus 30 is like 1 in a billion. And like 1 in a billion is kind of like a probability for something terrible to happen that you, okay. you can kind of accept. Um, so that's why we often like say something like 30 samples is enough to ensure that, um, that, the, that the data is available. Um, because yeah, if you take 30 samples, then each sample uh, increases like or half the probability that the data could be unavailable. So the entire block is committed as a whole. So the whole block is committed into a polynomial. Yeah. And I can kind of, my mental model for that is similar to erasure coding, right? Like I basically generate. It, it is. I mean, a polynomial is an erasure, erasure code. That's more or less the same thing. I mean, there are other erasure codes other than polynomials, but uh, they, they are rarely used. I think it's almost always polynomials. And this data, this commitment is generated by every validator in that subcommittee? Um, no, only the proposer needs to compute this commitment once. That's enough because I, 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 afterwards, like, you just know. Well, I guess it depends. Yeah, so like uh, you mean for you could, you might want to check that the block actually corresponds to the commitment. But they are actually more efficient ways. You don't need to recompute the commitment in order to verify that the commitment is correct. So, so when my validator joins a new network, mm -hmm. you mean a new shard? Yeah, a new, sorry, a new, a new shard. I yeah. I wanna yeah. I wanna sample. I basically wanna check that the mm -hmm. previous committee mm -hmm. in that network actually did the work. So, given the Merkle roots that are in the beacon chain, right? Right. I then start sampling. You don't really need to do that. You don't verify the previous committee's work. That's not your 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 task is only the your own committee. That's all. That's your complete responsibility. Okay. And so, actually, to be very precise here, you actually donate the whole block when you're in a committee because um, we kind of want committees to assure like the whole block. It's this is kind of subtle. I think like in a way you could say. We use committees for like short-term data availability because data availability in our kind of probably isn't very good if you want very low latencies, like as in a few seconds, because kind of all this data has to distribute it, be distributed in a peer-to-peer -peer network and you have to donate it from there. And we don't really know if that can really be done in 10 seconds. Um, so we're more comfortable relying for that on the committees if it's about a few seconds. And only when blocks are supposed to be finalized after like two epochs, basically, um, then we will task all validators to do the full data availability sampling. Now for all blocks, not just for their own committee. Why do they need to do that? Like, why, why do they even care? Why do they care? Um, that's, well, because they want to be sure that they're not building a chain where some block is not available. Like that would be terrible. If like some at some point we wake up and we notice a chain has been finalized, um, but there was a block in it that's unavailable. So in, I guess in your example with the car keys and the and the payment, well, would you feel confident in the payment if it's accepted by the shard or until after the data availability checks to finalize it? Uh, I think that that is very highly dependent on on what the payment is for. <laughs> I guess like if you're selling your car and there's like tens of thousands of dollars at stake, and um, then it's not really a big hassle for you to wait ten minutes until it's finalized, right? So uh, I would guess you might 
wait for it potentially i don't know like i mean honestly it's still it's still very unlikely that someone really manipulates the whole chain for ten thousand dollars like that seems very very unlikely but maybe something other catastrophic could happen so i don't know i don't know that's really up to you i guess like where where you put the exact limit i would say like i'm definitely comfortable paying for my coffee um uh <laughs> without finalization what does the network do what is the state of the network if that check fails like is there does right. it continue executing or does it halt? It just basically it just means that that block and anything that descends from it becomes invalid. Like it's not part of the fork choice rule anymore. Oh, interesting. So you have to you basically have to start building from the last block that that was on yeah that's on the fork choice that's before that. I guess right now if you're relying on the majority, honest majority per shard. Is that part of the the role, initial rollout of the data availability shards? Oh, uh, the common yes, yes. I mean, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, that that would also just be data shards, yes. And you basically rely on those committees voting on like, yeah, I saw this data; it's available. Yeah. And if that check fails, they will actually fork off and go rebuild that that whole chain again. But that's scary. <laughs> 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 but I mean, we're talking about we're talking about a majority dishonest failure already here, right? Well, data availability, I think, is is a it means a that could be triggered through like intrusion, right? right? Like, okay. That that's that's a it's not necessarily dishonest; it's just corrupted, right? Like, well, no, because they were tasked to like the co there was a committee, a randomly sampled yeah. committee that was supposed to check that it's available. And the majority of the committee voted that it saw the data and it's available. Actually, like we have this, we, we add this mechanism. But it could have been like an, that AWS for our outage, right? That's, that, mm -hmm. there's a non-zero chance, right? That like you happen to have the worst kind of like situation where you have a bunch of nodes running by stake.com or whatever are probably amazing people right. but scale out across common infra right and that particular region <laughs> dies for four hours right. while the poor administrators running around trying to like figure out and bring it back up <laughs> so i mean i think if one third of the east two network were running on aws then that's failure like that network is not decentralized. So on, on us, like here, like for us right now, we see uh, close to one third running on in Hetzner, um, Germany. Right. And that is to me, yeah. it, it's wildly scary, right? Like, holy shit. That, if it that is. thing has like, you know, a rat that chews through some power cable. <laughs> I mean, Hetzner, Hetzner is a party in your network, yeah. basically. Yeah. Like, I mean, they have literal physical control of these computers and i mean i guess the good thing is they have a reputation yep. and the bad thing is if some i mean they're probably like great guys and really nice and everything and they don't want to do anything evil um but they could be pressured into right. doing something like it could be or even you know, you know in, lots of things can the happen. larger the organization is the easier it is to actually break into it like intrusion i think right is that often that is one thing there could be a rogue admin right it. That's it. that would be enough. Just more people, more mistakes, and that's how you get end up with security bugs, right? Like, the, <laughs> it's not like Microsoft right. was was evil or incompetent. They had actually hired the best engineers out of the top schools. It's just there were sixty thousand of them, and right. <laughs> the smartest people. When you have sixty thousand of them, you know, communication is the hardest part. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, the, the bigger the organization, the more likely it is to actually have like just, it, it, you know, errors of incompetence. That, um, I guess that, that depends on how, how you use. Like, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, that's culture and that's, um, that structure, how you structure your organization. It's like, I guess you can, you can like compartmentalize yeah. and make sure that this doesn't happen or you can like be really dependent, like, yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're always, yeah. I mean, I think like what's difficult, like I guess is for large organizations, say, um, 
it's uh they 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 are they become much more efficient when they just trust their employees yeah. and say like well any anyone has has the authority to do anything and that most of the time that works very very well right like i mean if you really like empower your employees then yeah. often that times that's great yeah. and they end up doing great stuff <laughs> but the problem is also then you have much more tail risks that uh that one of them um yeah leaks all your data or something like that these are yeah, these are really hard problems. Um, so I have a philosophical question. That's a technical question too. Um, with the with a sharded system, you know, I think Ethereum when it scales will probably generate as much data as Solana does. Um, like we have, we're like we're like right now our steady state load is a thousand TPS. Good luck booting from a thousand. Yeah. Transactions per second. Good right. luck. Good luck booting from block zero and catching up. Like, it's not uh... right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that that is that is literally we do not expect anyone in ES two, or like except for people who want to run very special archive nodes, say because they run a block explorer. We don't expect anyone to start thinking from block zero. Um, that is literally not a problem. So when I boot up a new machine, I enter mm -hmm. the network as if I just joined a new, like this is my first my first block at my first committee. Yeah. Well, so what you will do is you need to you need to find obviously what what the current state of the chain is, right? And um, uh, and you don't do that by starting from block zero because you literally, as we know, like proof of stake has the so-called weak subjectivity problem, obviously. So it doesn't even make sense to start from block zero, right? Like yeah. there, there's no sense in doing it because someone could have faked a different chain and so on. Um, so instead you, you need some trusted source or maybe ideally a multitude of trusted sources. Um, and and get a current root from them and just start downloading from there. Um, so that that's enough. So my my I I'm a hundred percent agree with you. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> this to me seemed like the obvious solution because it it borrows heavily from this idea of uh, trust and first use or tofu, which is a security primitive. Yeah. Available in like. Oh yeah. Uh, outside of crypto. I love it. Cryptography systems, yeah. right? So the idea there is that like. Yeah. I establish a, a session, yeah. and that and the software can tell yeah. me that the set, once established, that session remains established. That's the only thing the software does. Yeah. And then I use a side channel to go verify: is this the session that I actually care yeah. about? Um, mm -hmm. So, to me, the right. the interesting thing about proof of work was that the myth of this purely objective chain, which totally arguable myth. Mm -hmm. uh, Actually, what it did, what it created was that it allowed people to scale cryptography to the level that, like, um, mm -hmm. I'm guessing Binance probably generates a million signatures per day. Um, when I was at Qualcomm, yeah. we probably generated a, two signatures per year <laughs> for like, for, like the, for, for every firmware version. There was like a you know signing ceremony with like people under guard, I see. right? Like, right, right, that's right. the old world, and that's what that old world doesn't actually get cryptography yet. Right. Um, and you don't need proof of work once you have cryptography. Like that That to me is like, I think the, the interesting paradigm. Well, I mean, proof of work is an amazing innovation, right? It was like sure. a, a, a kind of, it was a great invention. Um, like, I don't want to doubt that. Um, although there are lots of things wrong with it. Um, there are also, and, and like, I mean, as long as we have it, for example, it's also great because it does provide objectivity, right? Like we might literally just like timestamp our chains on a proof of work chain once every week and we get objectivity for almost for free in addition. So that's great. I think that's still very cool. And um, like, why not use it while we have it? Um, I mean, isn't the beacon chain a PDF, which is effectively like what you get from timestamping? Right. Um, VDFs do provide, we have thought about this. So VDFs do provide some mitigation on uh, on weak subjectivity. And um, the problem is, so like basically you could say like, if there, if, if a VDF is perfect, right? Like the attacker can't compute it any faster. Yep. And like, whenever you get a chain, you verify that it has the 
full amount or at least the maximum amount of VDF work, like serial work done on it, then you kind of, you're protected against weak subjectivity. The problem is um, that VDFs aren't perfect, right? Like, I mean, we assume that they can be accelerated like 10x maybe or so, like that's our security assumption. And then it doesn't provide, value, like it only extends your weak subjectivity period by 10% basically, which isn't very much at all. I would love to get a beer with you and Justin Drake. <laughs> and we, we can really argue about this. I, I think honestly that um, it's possible to get much, much closer uh, using right. pure and fabrication processes and like standard, just right. all the tools that we have, I think we can get the attack surface down to right. like 30%, maybe at most. I mean, that, that, that's, I think that depends on two factors. Like if one is how much money are you willing to invest? Correct. And two, how much money do you think an attacker would invest? I mean, it's very, very different. If you, if you assume an attacker who invests 100 million, then I would agree with you. Like the attack surface probably isn't actually that large. Or if you, if you assume an attacker who can invest several billions of dollars and then you're like, oh shit, like there are a lot of, very long tails I have to worry about. But I think the, the interesting part there is that you're really dealing at like the best, all the best of what humans can do is semiconductor manufacturing. That's the pinnacle of our existence right now. <laughs> and, right. and improvements yeah. there are um, take exponentially more like money to get a very right. small amount of gain. Right? Yeah. Like it, 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 it's an interesting problem to to base the security assumption on that i think could be quite strong right so that but time will tell right like this is 100 percent unknown like mm -hmm. <laughs> um but i i had this like vision that like you know we're gonna have vdfs on mars and vdfs on earth that could basically give us strong guarantees about order of events between those two planets regardless of the time distance between them you know like <laughs> how, how cool could that be right <laughs> Um, I, I guess like, I mean, and of course, like there's a third factor, like, I mean, I guess like, like the problem is what you don't like, you're, you're only thinking about the no, known unknowns here. And like, that's yep. kind of, you're excluding the unknown unknowns, yep. basically. Yep. That's, I think, difficult here. What if someone does find a better algorithm to like compute modular squaring and this kind of stuff? Um, so yeah, I mean, then, but generally, I mean, yeah, it depends on a lot of things. Then, yeah, I probably agree that in most cases, we don't expect the massive acceleration. But the problem is, even if it's just 30%, then you still have weak subjectivity, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's three times it's three times better, but it's longer, but still... Subject. Yeah, there's some use cases where that's enough, right? Because mm -hmm. right. What, you, what you need is that, like, with, with TOFU, right? Like, the idea is that if I reestablish a session... Yep. Uh, if the session is connected, then it's established. And that connectivity is based on TTL until I see messages, right? Like if, if I experience a timeout that is X long, can I still say that the session's established? Well, I mean, I mean, like, I mean, I, I'm with you in saying that weak subjectivity is in practice not really a big problem. Like, I mean, I think I see it as like it's barely a new trust assumption. Like, honestly, when you download your Bitcoin client, like you do not verify <laughs> the code. You do not read right. the whole code and see like, oh yes, this is actually a completely perfect, secure Bitcoin client that will connect to the right chain. You do not know, you trust the developer. Now, the only thing that you add is the, the developer has just added one hash to the download that puts you on the right chain. One, one, single, one single gate change uh, could break it. So I, this is like something that I learned uh, through a ton of security classes at Qualcomm was that the attack surface code, the you know the microcodes, the pipelining, the yep. TSMC layer. Yep. That literally TSMC could could introduce a single change during the fabrication process yep. that'd be extremely hard to detect. Right. That could like basically break right. all your security assumptions. Right. <laughs> and. And you could actually do it post-manufacturing that as you order your Apple laptop, it's 
put in a package mm-hmm. and it's shipped to you. Uh, what depending which truck it lands, that truck could be owned by a three letter agency that you know dopes that ship with like a right. <laughs> your, your host. <laughs> uh, not that I'm that paranoid. Well, I guess I mean, it's, but a single gate chain, I can believe that it could be very hard to detect. I think in that case, it would be very hard to uh, to be a very specific attack. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I guess hardware attack vectors. I mean, it it is it is worrying and it is interesting. Yeah, for for stuff like that, I I kind of make the assumption that if that's your enemy, you're kind of screwed anyways. <laughs> so I might as well not worry about it. If your enemies are that powerful, you know that that you right. you've already succeeded beyond your wildest dreams. <laughs> Right, but I mean TSMC. Do you see TSMC as that powerful? So I, I would disagree with that. I think to me it's more like one thing at a time. Yep. Right. Like let's worry about pushing. <laughs> yep. And I mean I I do want to see open hardware. Like ideally, like this would all be open and we would all be able to like run a program that verifies that our processor hasn't been tampered with and stuff like that and like and there would be independent uh i don't know verifiers who like x-ray processors all the time and check that nothing funky is going on um but i mean we don't have it right now but hopefully we'll build it in the long term this is part of like i think the i'm like i'm an like open source geek the allure of skipping state evaluation means that you could potentially like you know, for 50k, I could probably get a 40 nanometer, like maybe not 40, maybe not nanometer, but like a you know two three like you know like two three hundred nanometer fab built at home. Like, and I could mask my own hardware. I could like build my own circuit boards. I could for 50k, 50 to 100k. I think I think like a not 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 like 40 nanometer process, but like a 10x worse, like 400 nanometer. Okay. I I honestly I'm not yeah I'm I'm not into that deep into hardware I'm I'm very surprised to hear that number, but yeah because that stuff is now so old that it's not even used for like microcontrollers mm-hmm. right like it, it's basically be like you know ten year old hardware so are you you're you're basically uh, like talking about buying disused machinery basically yeah we build our own network cards right we build our own like storage stuff and now, now you have a network that you totally know that is home built right and the old the only way you can do that is by really like yeah. only focusing on data availability only right and i mean this is the amazing thing about some of the stuff we are building like data availability and light clients and zero knowledge proof where we make it so much easier to verify stuff than it is to like prove and like compute everything like suddenly like you're like horribly old like i don't know or maybe like like one way would be you'd build your hardware now or maybe the other way is like you have your old 486 machine somewhere in your basement and you're like well there's no way they could have known what blockchains are and uh, <laughs> they could they could have tampered with it <laughs> so i can't be sure that whatever program i write in quick basic on there is gonna do what i think it does and um and you could verify yep. And and that would still be like that that very old hardware would take a bit longer, but it could actually verify like a zero knowledge proof still quite easily. Um and I think that's really cool. Like it's really in my opinion, it's kind of it gives the the power back to the little people because they can't they can at least verify everything. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh hopefully we'll find some good uses to that power. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I mean so uh the irony is that like that having that option is actually necessary for like higher demand networks to exist because it's harder for governments to like democratic governments with like normal processes and reviews to go and shut something down where an alternative option if even if it's lower exists right like that that's open and decentralized so like the core part of like going after that is I think important for the entire industry. Like it's kind of even more of a concentrated effort that like, um, you know, I, I hope 
like all of these things succeed <laughs> um, because uh, that, that would be wonderful. <laughs> you know, cool. I, I mean, like, so, yeah, this was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I wish. I wish we were having a beer at a bar somewhere in <laughs> in Germany. Uh, maybe maybe next year. So I'm hoping for that. But yeah, really cool to have you on here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, and I am quite quite positive that it, it might happen. I think like things are things are like I mean they might look terrible right now, but like, there are also some like positive indicators. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you, Dunkard. Uh, and uh, yeah, good luck. Thanks.